Hi, I'm Richard and this is my podcast, State of Mind, with me, Richard Sefton. I want to have a conversation about having a conversation. The importance of us talking either to other people or even to ourselves can be awesome. Uh, It's proven to reduce stress and anxiety and help with depression and, you know, amongst many other benefits. We can talk to our friends, our neighbours, our family, our dogs, our cats, our budgies, our goldfish. And as I said, we can even talk to ourselves because talking is a great therapy and it can help reorganise our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. Just by saying something out loud can help us to see it in a completely different light. On this podcast, I'm going to be talking to a few people and giving them a chance to have a good old natter. We might go quite deep and talk about emotive subjects or we might have a chit chat for half an hour. My ethos is that that doesn't matter. We will all reap a benefit from that. Us as the listener, them as the talker. If you're not in the best place at the minute, I would love for you to see a benefit in talking through listening to this podcast. So with that in mind, go and grab a cuppa and let's get going. Let's get this conversation started. I'm joined today by political commentator, fellow podcaster, author and LBC presenter Ian Dale. Through listening to Ian's LBC show and also his podcast, um, it's very obvious to me that this subject means a lot to him. So I'm going to start by asking my first question. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hi, Ollie. (laughs) In your line of work, how many people would you say ask you that question daily? Um, virtually every caller that calls into LBC, um, it's usually, um, I mean, I always, they always ask me how I am, but if I then reply, it effectively uses up a couple of minutes of the program. Mm -hmm. So some, often I don't reply to that question. Um, I, I, I just move on to ask them what they've called in about, which some people think is a bit rude, but seriously, I think every other listener would get really bored with me saying, yeah, actually, you know, I've had a, I've had a really bad day today. And um, I'm, I'm not really in the mood for the programme tonight. But anyway, here goes. What would you What would you like to say? No, <laughs> um, it doesn't. No, honest, it doesn't I've really work that. like that. I have noticed that, and I've noticed it a lot with your colleagues as well. And I just assumed that that was the reason why, because like like you've just said, you don't want to be taken up the show by by that. But what you know, so many people ask that question every day, and and you just give like this stock answer back normally. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine without without giving it any thought, and. I'm asking, really, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Ollie. <laughs> I think um, I, I, I'm I'm somebody who's a pretty level-headed person. I don't have deep mood swings, um, and if I do have mood swings, they don't last very long. Um, I, I I don't I don't think I've ever suffered from depression, as most people would define it. I've had I've had some pretty bad things happen to me in my life I suppose one way or another but um when I have a when I'm not back or anything you just pick yourself up and you move on because if you don't what's the alternative so I can't remember a period in my life where I would have actually answered that question you know what I'm in a really bad place now I consider myself really lucky because of that because I I I know from people who call into the program that that's not the case for a lot of people and some people go for months and months and months in in a really bad place. Now, that kind of thing fascinates me because I've never experienced it. And I find it difficult to imagine what it must be like to be in that really dark place. And particularly over coronavirus. I mean, people have had some really bad mental health issues, not not just depression, but anxiety as well. So well, what if I do go outside the house? People who are not agoraphobics, but um, just for whatever reason, 
have a deep fear of what could happen to them if they leave their front door during lockdown. So I find the whole subject completely fascinating. It's not something I ever thought that I would really talk about when I joined LBC. I thought I'd be doing politics all the time. And almost on one of my first programmes, I did an hour on mental health and I had people ringing me and telling me all of their most personal details. Uh, and it's a real, I know it sounds tripe, it's a real honour and privilege to listen to people doing that because often they're telling you for the first time. They, they've never told anyone else about these issues and yet they're speaking on national radio. And um, it, it's... And I asked my boss once why why people do that, and he said because you've got an unthreatening manner, you don't have a sharp voice, you've got a soft voice, you don't interrupt people, you allow them to speak, so they will open up to you. And I won't say I've exploited that over the years, but I, I've 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 come to know that that is absolutely true, and that people will tell me some of the most personal details about their private lives, not just on mental health, but other issues too. But when you say exploited, do you mean for the benefit of a good radio? Yeah, there's always the temptation as a radio presenter to um, you get someone on the phone and you can tell that they're probably slightly emotional. And I think the worst thing that you can do in that in that case is exploit their emotional vulnerability just for the sake of um, good radio. Now, um, I have had people break down in tears on the on the radio, um, and it's not an easy thing to deal with because you think, well, I can't, I can't remember a time when somebody's broken down uncontrollably, and I've had to say, right, let's um, go on to the next call, and I'll come back to you in a bit. Um, people generally recover themselves, and and yes, it, I mean, in a sense, it is good radio, but if the listener thinks that you as the presenter have deliberately provoked the caller into that situation that is a really bad place for you to be as a presenter you should never ever do that it's like you should never exploit callers in any way I don't think um, if somebody comes on the phone and they shall we say are clearly not that intelligent I think it's a really bad thing for any presenter to exploit that and show how clever they are and it, it just is not a good look. And, uh, and other people listening can tell what you're doing. And I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I've never, ever done that. I, I hope I hope I haven't. I can't think of an example, but I can't sit here and say that I'm sort of whiter than white on, on any of these issues, because sometimes you do give in to temptation that um, you, you, what, you, you sort of almost urge a caller to go that little bit further than they intended to when they picked up the phone, I suppose. I mean, when I'm when I'm listening to your phone in show, I hear people calling in because they want to say the message. They want to have their uh, their say. They want to speak. They want to open up. I've not. Um, you'll be pleased to know. I've not picked up on any uh, exploitation or anything around that. I view it from the kind of other way. I mean, I sent a message to LBC on a recent phone in that you did. Uh, on loneliness thanking you for, for giving these people a chance to speak because I, I, I feel it's so important I said at the start it's good to talk and I mm. think that they are possibly getting getting so much out of that um, what you say around um, you know exploiting as in uh, if you feel you're on a level and somebody else on a different level calls in and you you don't think that 
presenters should necessarily exploit that. That kind of makes me think about sections in your, in, which leads me into your book. Uh, why can't we just get along, shout less, listen more? Um, and for me, you really made me look at my social media usage in that. Um, and the way that I felt like I could address people online as opposed to face to face, because there was a real difference. Um, mm. I, I think social media does have a massive impact on mental health. Um, and I know you as a Brexiteer, a lever in the referendum, and I was a Remainer or a Ramona. And I can attest to some horrendous things that have been said to me since 2016. Uh, but I can also admit to slinging a few nasty comments to people. And I am ashamed of that because it's a different political view and I should accept that um, and accept that we're different. And in so many ways, I see difference and I find it beautiful. I find it amazing. I love that we live in a place where there's so many differences and diversities. I really do. I see it as massive positives. How do you think social media has affected you specifically over the last four years, being on one side of a, a, a spiky fence? Social media is a great thing in many ways. It gives people a voice. It means that people can feel that they are, that their opinions count for something. And even if they've only got 50 followers, to those 50 followers, that they, they have a voice. Now, the, the problem is that social media has attracted lots of um, bad people, some evil people, and they tend to be the ones that shout the loudest and get the most coverage. Uh, and social media encourages you to be an extreme version of yourself, which is not a healthy place to be. And I'm I'm not a very shouty person generally, but I, ha I have found that Twitter in particular ha turns me into one. And I, I say in the book that someone, I, can't, I wish I could remember who said this. They said on the radio, Ian Dale is nice, nice, nice. But on Twitter, he's an absolute beast. Probably this was three of... <laughs> this is three or four years ago and I thought you, you know what you're right and I have tried to moderate myself on Twitter um, but it, if you have a public profile it, it, you don't have to be a major league celebrity and I'm not but if you have a bit of public profile the abuse you get is just has to be seen to be believed sometimes mm. and and you think how dare these people um sort of just make things up about me how dare they think they know what i think about something and so i do tend to correct them now in the past i would have done it in a fairly aggressive manner and if someone called me a twat i'd call them a fucking twat and <laughs> and, and it sort of escalates until you've created a real enemy well, well they've created an enemy you've created an enemy and you think in the end though what good does that do so I, I have tried to moderate it. I don't tend to call people twats anymore. I might call them a muppet, which in some ways is slightly more wounding. But uh, um, there are ways of making your views known without being overly aggressive. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I uh, have cured myself of any aggression on Twitter at all. But I have certainly toned it down a lot in the last two years because you, you talked about the Brexit referendum. And that was the only time in my life when I really thought I don't understand my own country, where people genuinely felt that if anybody held the opposite point of view to them, they were thick, racist or stupid. Mm -hmm. That's on the on the Remain side. And on yeah. the Brexit side, if you didn't support Brexit, you were a traitor to your country. Now, these were extreme positions, but they became the norm. And I, I never used the word Ramona about anybody. 
Um, I think initially what I did get rather tired of people trying to pretend that we hadn't had a referendum and that we should still not leave. And I think I did say, uh, sort of, you lost, get over it to a few people initially. But even that I stopped doing because um, what good does it do? People are entitled to hold that they, the views that they hold. And what you have to do is put your argument against them. And I think quite a few people did change their minds, actually on both sides afterwards, um, in, in many ways. And I think if you can't accept that somebody has a right to hold a different opinion to you, then you can't really argue with them because you can't marshal your own arguments. If you're not listening to them, um, how can you develop your own arguments properly? Mm. So again, I'm not pretending that having written this book, which is all about the decline in public discourse. I mean, the, the strap line is shout less, listen more. And I really do believe that, that that is a good thing. And people say, yeah, but you're a shock jock. You work on a talk radio station. I'm not a shock jock. I think I actually listen quite a lot to what people say. And it's very rare that I shout at anyone on the radio. And if I do, there is a reason for it. Um, and I, I do it so rarely that people will sit up and take notice when I do it, whereas there are some people, no names, no pack drill on the radio, who literally make a career out of shouting at everybody. Well, I, I don't find that a good listen. No, no, I don't I don't think I do, actually. And I, I, I suppose with, again, reference in the book, you have a love of debate, which is completely... It, it, I'd say going on social media, speaking of Twitter and stuff, these are arguments, these are rows, these are aggressive, these are nasty. Like you say, you become enemies and and nobody moves. In fact, if, if anything, they do. They move the other way. Um, whereas we yeah, they, 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 they entrench themselves in their already entrenched positions and they develop a bunker mentality. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tribal instinct. Look, we're human beings. We, we all have a tendency to be tribal, whether it's football teams, whether it's politics, whatever it is, we belong to different tribes. Mm -hmm. And if your tribe is under attack, the natural human instinct is to defend yourself and attack back because attack is the best form of defence generally. So you're not going to change human nature in these things. But all you can do is, and it's interesting what you said at the beginning, you sat down and thought about your own behaviour. And I've had so many people contact me after the book, since the book came out, and said, particularly when they've read the 50 ways to improve public discourse that I've got at the end, they said, I really sat down and thought about my own behaviour on social media, the way that I debate with people. And that's all you can ever hope to achieve with a book like this. You, you, you're not going to convert people to anything. Mm -hmm. um, all you can do is try to make them examine their own behaviour a little bit. Well, it's funny, yeah, because when I first started reading it, I found myself kind of reading a sentence and then thinking to myself, yeah, but you would say that, you know, and, and kind of... You, you Tory bastard. Yeah, arguing <laughs> with myself in my head, just because I knew that you held slightly different beliefs to me in some areas. It, to me, it was like every sentence, even if it was like, good morning world. Oh, yeah, you would say that. It's the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like that. And I think that uh, the best word that I've ever learned in my life, and it sounds really strange to say this possibly, but uh, I'll explain why, is sorry. I think it's really underrated and it's not used. It's not meant nearly enough. 
when I was in a different life, I worked in the police and somebody said to me, if you make a mistake, own up to it as soon as you can own up to it. Um, and you know, it, it can be, things can be fixable. Before then, it's, it, I suppose it's almost, it's a human nature to, to hide our mistakes and to, to not to admit to them. And I got in so much trouble before then because I wouldn't admit when I was wrong. Yeah. And later well, on in life, yeah, the, the word sorry, I've learned the word sorry and it has changed my life immeasurably. You know, in, in personal, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my family, I love using it now. I love admitting my mistakes. Well, we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. Even the most perfect human being on earth will make a mistake. And it's how you deal with your mistakes, whether they are long-term strategic mistakes, you, you go into the wrong job, you find out it's not for you or whatever. Um, you, you have to acknowledge it to yourself, first of all. And, and often that's the most difficult thing. I think a lot of people find it very difficult to admit their own mistakes, their own failures, their own misjudgments. And that's perfectly natural, actually. And I, I think it, it all comes down to self-knowledge in the end, doesn't it? That yeah. I... I reckon that I didn't fully know myself until I was about 50 which sounds a weird thing to say but I I don't think I fully acknowledged what my strengths were what my weaknesses were um, what my total personality was and it was only so I'm, I'm 58 now believe it or not um, it, it's really only in the last few years that I've learned to accept I am who I am. To is that Shirley Bassey or Gloria Gaynor? I can't remember. A <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think that's so important in life. Now, for different people, that comes at a different age. It may be that many people experience that at the age of thirty, or maybe they don't experience it till the age of seventy. But I remember, I used to have quite a big uh, chip on. Well, not, no, it wasn't a chip on my shoulder. It was. I just felt that I wasn't quite as good as a lot of my contemporaries, well, certainly when I was in the political world, where I would be in a group conversation with George Osborne, David Cameron, Nick Bowles, Ed Vasey, people like that, all of whom had been to public school and were educated at Oxford or Cambridge. I wasn't. I went to a state school. I went to the University of East Anglia. Now, it was only really in the last few years where that feeling has completely disappeared and where I feel that I'm on a complete par with anyone else. Now, maybe that's because I've proved myself um, in my career on the radio. Um, I've got two awards for presenter of the year, so I must, I must be doing something right. Okay. But there, there, there were, it, it was a really strange feeling because on if you're in the public eye in politics or the media, people imagine that you are a complete extrovert, the most confident person that they, they know. And I'm sure a lot of people think that about me. Um, but there is another side and I mean I'm actually believe it or not quite a shy person in in many ways I, I'm not an extrovert it, okay I can go on a, a stage in a theatre and talk to a thousand people but I don't like going into a room full of strangers and having to make polite conversation uh, that is uh, I, I won't say I view it with horror but it's not something I enjoy doing um so th there's that that inner conflict where you uh you, you know you've got to appear confident in, in many of the things that you do but it's actually rather different in deep down in inside your head 
yeah, that makes me feel really sad for your younger self there. When you, <laughs> it, it really does. You when you're saying that you're this 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 person on the radio as well, and you, and you think that that people will think you're something else. Um, I I I hear when I listen to you on the radio, I hear somebody that that um, isn't as confident as I think other people feel. When I hear some of your colleagues, again, no names mentioned, but I hear a bullied child. Um, so I suppose we hear different things. That's, that's quite an amazing thought, actually, to think about it. But we hear different things. A lot of us hear what we want to hear um, and we won't be moved from that. But I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is I've heard that shy person in you. Uh, and I'm not saying that everyone will have done, but I have. Um, how how was your life growing up then? Before, um, you know, before school, do you remember much of it? Your parents? I had a perfect childhood. I'm not going to lie. Mm. Um, I grew up on a small farm in near Saffron Walden in Essex, in a very small village called Ashton. Uh, I went to the local primary school, Church of England Primary School. About a hundred kids there. Uh, then went to the local comprehensive in Saffron Walden, about 1,200 kids. I think the school's now about 2,200, so very different from my day. This was uh, this was uh, in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to a private school in Cambridge, and I, I sat all the entrance exams, but I kept saying to them, why, why would I want to go to a school in Cambridge? All my friends are going to Saffron Walden. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I refused to go to the private school. And my parents weren't rich. Uh, If you're a small farmer, yes, they owned their farm, but it was a fairly hand-to-mouth existence. We we never had money to go on holiday. Not that my father ever would go on a holiday anyway. Um, But I I say it was a perfect childhood because I I had two very loving parents. Um, My mother was one of these people who was just a living saint. And I know a lot of people say that about their mothers, but in my case, it was genuinely true. I had two sisters. There's two years between us all. I was the oldest. And um, it was a it was an idyllic childhood. We, we lived in the middle of the countryside. Um, I, I would work on the farm with my dad. I was driving a combine harvester at the age of eight, unsupervised, <laughs> which he'd be put in prison for nowadays, I think. Um, but there wasn't this whole risk-averse culture. And a farm is a dangerous place, but we never thought of it like that. Um, and, and all of the, my friends from school, they would come up to the farm to play. We would sort of be bombing around the farm on our bikes and um, playing touch it on bikes and all sorts of other things and and it and at harvest time that was that was the time i think from my childhood that i will remember most when um we'd be out until 10 o'clock at night on the combine harvester i i'd be driving the tractor and trailer bringing the corn home to the farm as well um stubble burning i mean if you've never been stubble burning it's the most fantastic fun you can have without having sex and it was yeah like sex to be honest (laughs) do you know what i mean by stubble burning no um well when 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 the when the corn is cut there's all the straw Mm -hmm. left behind and you either um bale it for to make straw bales for animals or you burn it because you've got to clear it off the fields before you can plough it for the next season's crop. Um, so we would, um, my father had a Morris Minor pickup truck and I would drive that and one of the boys from the village would be sat on the back with a with an oily rag doused in petrol 
um, and light it. And then we would just go along the field and the whole field would then go up in flames. And it was just fantastic fun. But John Gummer, when he was an uh, environment secretary under Margaret, Th- no, under John Major, banned it uh, because of the CO2 emissions that uh, that it raised. So um, my father never forgave him for that. Um, but that was fantastic fun. There was a time, though, when I had about six boys on the back of the uh, pickup truck and we got surrounded by the flames. And I just had to shout to them, get down, I'm going for it. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. and I just dro- I just drove through the flames uh, to get to get out. I would have been about thirteen or fourteen at that point. I'm guessing um, at the time that was horrific and very scary, but the memory is amazing. It didn't feel scary at the time because I okay. kind of I knew I knew it would be okay in the end. My only fear was that the petrol tank on the pickup truck might oh, burst into flames. Um, wow. But I mean, it, it was a typical rural upbringing um I, I used to go shoot pheasant shooting and rabbit shooting which having now become completely townified i i couldn't do now but that was part of the rural way of life i was a useless shot it had to be said but we would go out rabbit shooting at about 10 o'clock at night um after after we'd sort of finished harvesting and i would sit on the bonnet of the morris minor pickup truck my dad would be driving i'd have a loaded 12 bore shotgun and he would he would be racing around the fields where the uh, hares are really fast runners and um i was a much better shot at rabbits and hares than i ever was at pheasants but the thought of doing it now horrifies me um because i i haven't been part of that lifestyle for a very long time when i stood for parliament in 2005 in north norfolk i had to really that's the only time i ever lied about my views in that i've always been against hunting Mm -hmm. uh fox hunting i mean um but if i had said that then i wouldn't have got selected it's the only time i've really had to compromise my views um, but hunting, people would say, is part of a rural pursuit. Um, I, I got put off hunting right from the start because the local hunt used to trample over my dad's cornfields. And I thought it was outrageous that these posh blokes and posh women would be riding their horses, thinking that they could just go wherever they liked without the con- without any consequence. So I wasn't hunting. I wasn't against hunting because of the fox. It was just because I hated these the people. posh people. <laughs> How many people are against hunting for that? Not for the I don't fox. know. <laughs> I mean, not specifically that reason. Well, I mean, I, 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 I have shot foxes, so um, that they are a, a pest in the countryside. So I've got they are beautiful animals. It has to be said. Uh, and again, I could never shoot a fox now, um, but it was it was part of the lifestyle. Yeah, I used to say that. Um, I don't understand how it can be a game or, or a sport, but for pest control although i do i do still say the biggest pest on the earth is the humans um i, I don't know your view on that but uh with the foxes yeah I, I always i could never understand how people could do it for a sport or for a game um in on like you say such a no. beautiful creature no i mean that sucks. that's the thing you see rats I, I i would have no compunction in killing a rat now mm. and, and i didn't then and um i used to kill rats regularly on on the farm um, but fox is different. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of joy when you talk about your childhood. I'm I'm smiling because it sounds like you're smiling talking about it. So, did you have a really good close relationship with your with your siblings and your and your parents then? Was um, it just you? Yes, yes, I did. Um, 
I, I was closest to, to my mother. My father was, I suppose, a man of his time. He he regarded my mother's role as bringing up the children. Um, she came from a farming background as well. In fact, it was her money uh, or her father's money that bought their farm in 1958. Imagine eleven thousand pounds for two hundred acres. Um, uh, that that was what land was fetching Sold. at the time. I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. And um, she was. I mean, she did work on the farm when, when we were children, but she she couldn't drive. She could drive a tractor, but not uh, a car. And I always remember when I was about 12 or 13, we were on the school bus going home and I suddenly saw my mum out the corner of my eye and she'd been driving the tractor through Saffron Walden. <laughs> she'd hit a police car. Oh, God. Oh, wow. And it, it was actually the policewoman's fault, but um, she never admitted it. And But the embarrassment of seeing my mother with a tractor in a police car was uh, something to behold. Um, but, yeah, my father was... Um, he was always really good in a crisis. Um, and he would always calm things down. And I won't say there were huge amounts of crises, but I remember on my 20th birthday when I was driving with my sisters to go to the pub about four miles from our house uh, to see some friends. Mm. And I had an accident. I hit a transit van head-on at 50 miles an hour. And this was the year before seatbelts became compulsory. Mm. And um, I just I can relive every second of that few minutes. Mm. And um, we should all three have been killed by rights because my old, my younger sister was in the front passenger seat. She was propelled onto the dashboard, smashed all her teeth in. The older sister was behind her in the back seat. She was pro propelled forward, and she cracked her skull on the back of the other one's net, oh. uh, head. Oh. I was holding onto the steering wheel so tightly that it it completely warped. And I escaped. I, I think I had to have a stitch in the back of my head or something. Um, but it was... I, I can just remember the hissing of the engine afterwards. And both of my sisters were screaming. And I just ran to the nearest house to get them to call 999. And um, there was a man, an elderly lady, in the transit van. And the, the front windscreen of the transit van had come off. And anyway, to cut a long story short... After about 20 minutes, my dad arrived on the scene. And for some reason, he parked his car about 200 yards away. And up until that point, I had been in complete control of this, of this situation. And uh, to the extent that I had to slap one of my sisters because she was becoming so hysterical, which she's never let me forget. And I just remember sp spotting my dad walking towards me in the middle of the... Sorry. spotted my dad walking towards me in the middle of the road uh, and I just collapsed and just started howling and bear in mind this was 38 years ago and um, he then started sort of directing operations the ambulance arrived my sisters went off in the ambulance and we went we then went back to his car he said right we better um, go and tell your mum what's happened and he handed me the car keys And I, I can remember thinking, I can't drive. And he said, if you don't drive now, you never will. And he was he was absolutely right. Um, 
Anyway, I mean, all was fine. They, they were fine, and my car was a write-off. It was my pride and joy. It was an orange Ford Cortina Mark III. Um, believe it or not, as I'm sitting here recording this to you, I've actually got the dashboard of that car on a window shelf next to me. Oh. HER392N. I can still remember the number plate. So that, that, was a, that was a pretty momentous moment, in a way. But that, I mean, going back to my sort of dad being good in a crisis um i i had a i did have a close relationship with them it it when i came out to them at the ripe old age of 40 um my mother did not um take it that well and nothing was ever said again but i know the reason i didn't tell them before that was because i knew how hurt she would be um yeah. and they came to my civil partnership, but she just looked as if she'd rather be anywhere else in the world. And I, I know how difficult all that was for her. Um, how difficult was she, it for you? Well, I felt that I had been a complete wimp over it all because I knew I was gay at the age of eight. Mm. And when you're driving those combine harvesters, <laughs> shooting hairs. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> um, and I, I didn't do anything about it. Um, there was one little incident when I was, I don't know how old I would have been, 14, 15, 16 maybe. Yeah. And without going into any gory detail, I kind of slightly made a pass at one of the, um, one of my friends from the village but it wasn't reciprocated i mean it, there was no there was no nastiness or anything yeah. um uh, and i literally then didn't do anything about it i had i had quite a few girlfriends and and looking back i know that i had feelings for them but i wasn't really sexually attracted to them now i did sexual things but yeah. i didn't do it mm -hmm. and because yeah. i just knew that that was a line i i didn't want to cross and I mean, there's one girl in particular I remember who clearly uh, was gagging for it, shall we say? And uh, but I just, I just thought I can't. And the next morning, she she basically left without saying a word, and that was pretty humiliating. I think both for her and for me. Mm. Um, and when I was at university, that was really bear in mind this was 1981 to 1985. That was when I should have felt liberated in a way but I didn't I remember going to the Freshers Fair uh, in the second year and going walking past the gay society stand mm. and I just formed a conservative association so I I was people knew who I was yeah. and this guy shouted out are you going to join the gay society Ian and I said no I'm not gay he said oh you don't have to be gay just sort of show support I said no I'm not going to and bizarrely, he and I have um, hooked up on Facebook in the last few years, and I reminded him of that conversation. Um, Did you say hooked up? No, not hooked up. <laughs> not in not not in that way. <laughs> and um, and so I didn't I didn't do anything at university, and I didn't actually. And this sounds so ridiculous now. I didn't do anything with another guy until I was twenty eight, and. Looking back, I so wish that I'd been able 
to be open about it. But it, w it was a very different time. I feel really envious of anybody who's 18 nowadays who doesn't need to feel that. It wasn't a sense of shame at all. It was just knowing that I would disappoint a lot of people. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. Well, and actually, yeah, I heard you interviewing Will Young not that long ago and you mentioned that you'd never felt gay shame. And that intrigued me because I had. And I, I almost couldn't believe it. So, uh, yeah, so that that's that's kind of nicely led us into that me asking how that how well how do you, how would you define gay shame i i think probably just feeling dirty about anything that you do sexually and, you've um, never felt that. and i've never felt that at all wow. well that's that's i suppose that's a really good thing isn't it positive well, thing i think so <laughs> i'm 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 very relieved because i know mm. so many people who just have have felt a, a deep sense of shame um, it, it, for all sorts of different reasons. It, it may be that uh, something happened to them when they were, were a child, which made them feel that way. And it, it, and it can take years, sometimes decades, to get over that feeling. Um, I, I, was, I was never abused in any way as a child. Um, so I, I didn't have that feeling at all. Um, and... I mean, without going into gory details, I mean, I, I've, shall we say, put myself in a few situations where I could easily have felt completely ashamed of myself for doing what I've done, mm -hmm. but I don't. Um, Do you think that comes with an inner confidence of who you are? I think it's it's partly about a difference between sex and love, I think, okay. in that... Um, traditional heterosexual relationships mm -hmm. have always been based on uh, a mutual love and you're not supposed to have sex outside those relationships mm -hmm. well i think in gay world it is a little bit different and that sex is something to be enjoyed and um you don't actually have to love the person that you're enjoy enjoying it with i mean i i know i'm saying making it sound terribly mechanical no i i'm agreeing with 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 every word really <laughs> <laughs> um i mean it is quite difficult to explain to people not actually not just to straight people but also some gay people who still have a fairly conservative view of sex and relationships um and i think there was part of me that because i hadn't partaken until I was 28 that I made up for lost time which makes me sound like a complete slag but I was well yeah and, and, <laughs> and confident with it so why not so 28 so that's half of your life one way and half of your life the other almost you know it, not not necessarily half didn't know whether I was Martha or Arthur Martha exactly. or Martha well actually I, I did know I always knew that was that's the thing, the thing. I, you knew, I, and I think that might have made a difference um, and I think the other thing is that I think if I had been born in 1952 as mm. opposed to 1962 we wouldn't be having this relationship now because I would be married with kids somewhere and probably hooking up with a, a bloke from time to time and, and there are so many men that do that. And I'm so glad that I'm not in that situation where I, I would have to hide. And I, I, I do think that a lot of men in that situation, they have perfectly loving marriages. Yeah. But they just need that something else. I'm not sure it is a an age thing as such, because I know people that are my age, younger, um, 
that may be in that situation. I know that it would have been more prevalent back then. Uh, I understand that. I don't understand why. And um, But yeah, I, I know people my age and younger that have been in that situation or are still in that situation. Um, so, so yeah. I, th I think part of it part of it does depend on where you live and if you yeah. if you live in a big metropolitan center um really nowadays there isn't that much well there is still homophobia but it's so different to what it was mm -hmm. and if you look at what happens in schools now i mean gay kids go around arm in arm don't think exactly. twice of it um that, that could never have happened um in, in my day at school no. and i i think that if you live in a very rural setting, um, there are gay people, but they tend to keep themselves to themselves. Yeah. Uh, but look, I, we I, we have a house in in North Norfolk, and you don't get much more rural than that. We've never had an issue there at all. Mm. I remember the the woman that we bought the house from, who's now become quite a good friend and actually looks after it when we're not there. She said to uh, my partner John once, she said, "You're very normal, really, aren't you? You two." And he said, well, what did you think? We'd be wandering around with nipple tassels or something. <laughs> do you not do that? No, only on, only, only on a Saturday night in May. <laughs> so, so where do you sit with labels then? Uh, like black, white, gay, straight, old, young, um, male, female. Who are you? Who? Well, I can't be doing with all of this LBGTQIPRSTUV, whatever. I you cannot be doing with it. Uh, well, I just made them up. Um, <laughs> you, you, you hit them. I I am a gay man. Yeah. I can't be doing with all this cis stuff and whatever. Mm. I am a gay man who has a penis. Yeah. And I mean that's and I'm afraid I, I I there's only one real debate that I very rarely dip my toe in and that is the trans debate because whatever you say whichever side of the fence you fall down on on that you are going to get the dog's abuse from one side or the other. Um mm. and I I'm not anti-trans at all, but I do think that so, some of the uh, some of the arguments that are put forward in in that area now are, are actually doing the trans trans people a lot of harm. And um, I anyway, as I say, it's not something I want particularly want to get into. No, I understand that, and you see again going back to social media, you see what a volatile subject it can be, and yeah, uh, both sides of the fence. You know, look at J.K. Rowling. And, oh, quite. And 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 the what some people might say the mess that she's got into um, certainly maybe backed into a corner. But I mean, my view is just almost so long as somebody isn't hurting anybody, let people be who they want to be. And so long as it, you know, if it's not affecting me, then it's none of my business. Exactly. My sort of, yeah. Um. But I did. I did struggle with with the extra letters in LGBTQ, you know, especially the Q, because for me, queer is an insult. It was an insult when I was growing up. It's still an insult now. And I don't think I'll ever recognise. I don't think I'll ever be able to recognise that word as um, a recognised identity, because to me, I don't think I could be wrong. I could be proven wrong, but I don't think you will find a person that defines themselves as queer that isn't gay, in which case surely the G is fine. Well, I would have thought so. I mean, look, there are nuances here in that most people are not 100% one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. In that, I, mean, I always have the uh, laugh with, with my partner on this, in that I can appreciate a woman's breasts. Mm. Um, he can't. He just can't see what the attraction is. And and so does that, that probably makes me 
I don't know, five or ten percent straight. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas he he I mean he he probably kill me for saying this. He did try it once and decided that it wasn't for him. And he, and he, he literally, I think, told the woman um, who actually did quite like him. He said, "Well, look, I'm quite happy to do it, but I just want to see if I like it." Um, and whereas I kind of knew that I didn't want to go that far. Um, so uh, I, I think most people are on a spectrum of if, if, from naught to a hundred. Naught percent is straight. Hundred percent is gay. Yeah. Well, there'll be many people that would say that they were almost completely straight, but yeah, they can admire a man's ass or whatever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see that doesn't necessarily make them bisexual. Um, I think bisexual is sort of if you're like 30, 40, 50 percent um, one way or the other. Uh, yeah, I've got to say, when I was working in the police, I had some interesting conversations with the, uh, you know, air bunnies, straight guys there. And it, it took a while to get them to see my point of view that there was no judgment, no, no, um, no names being thrown, no, um, no masks being flown, no scarves worn to say, yeah, that guy's got a nice ass. Mm. And it took them a while, but then you know, but they kind of a lot of them were like, "Yeah, I suppose I can see what you're saying." Yeah, uh, yeah. If you can admire someone's, be- it, it was a, um, it was a macho thing to not admit it because you see what you see. If you see a guy and you can say, "Oh my God, he's really good looking, isn't he?" Why not? Why not just admit it to yourself as well as other people? But the thing is, if you think about a male changing room at a gym or whatever, I mean. Don't tell me that even people who would say they were a hundred percent straight don't notice if the guy next to them has got a big cock or not. I mean, yeah. they do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. I was listening to the Fortunately podcast the other way, the other day, and Jane Garvey and Fee Glover were talking about the atmosphere in a women's changing room in a gym, and they were sort of saying, "Oh, well, it's it, it's all very uh, regimented, and nobody really looks at anybody else." And I was thinking, well, I know for a fact that it's not like that in a bloke's changing room. Really? So I was just going to say when you were saying that, I can't speak for a woman's changing room other than when I was a little kid and my mum, I'm, I'm one of three boys, so my mum had to take us into the women's changing rooms and stuff. I don't really remember. Um, probably blocked it out. <laughs> probably blocked it out because it was things that I didn't necessarily want to see. Whereas the other probably t- thing I, turned you gay. Well, no, the other thing would make me go to therapy to make me remember if I was taken into the women's <laughs> probably. But no, but the, the female, no, I've got no... The, the only thing I remember... Actually, yeah, the only thing I remember is when you'd go into the women's, it was more covered. It was more, there was yeah. more privacy in there. So actually, yeah, maybe maybe that there is something in that. Um, that yeah, actually, more... you have just sparked off a memory, and I must it's probably seven or eight, maybe. And uh, my mother had taken me into the women's changing rooms at uh, Cambridge Swimming Baths. Mm-hmm. And I remember a woman having a real go at her, saying, this is for women, not for boys. And from that moment on, I had to go into the men's changing room. <laughs> well, see, now you've just sparked in my head a previous subject that we were just speaking of um, and the dangers that you can get into. I'd like to um, sort of work towards um, Ian Dale, what brings him joy. Um, I'd imagine that you've got a love of writing as you have got a new book out at the minute. Um, so I would imagine that writing is something that maybe you enjoy. Well, you would imagine completely wrongly then, because <laughs> I, I don't in, I don't enjoy writing at all. 
Um, I regard it as a chore. It's something where I have complete imposter syndrome over uh, because I know that I can't write like the best writers do. I can't write a column in a newspaper like Boris Johnson or Michael Gove can. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say that because it used to be the case, less so nowadays, but it used to be the case that whenever I would send a column to a newspaper, I automatically expected them to send it straight back and say, this is absolute rubbish, do it again. They never did. They never did. Um, And nobody... Look, nobody ever says to your face, you are a terrible writer. You should just stick to talking. That's what you're good at. Mm. Um, but in recent years, I've come to recognise that maybe I was, I'm was i slightly better than I thought I was. So I, I don't have that total imposter syndrome about my writing now. I did about this, the book, though, because although I got used to writing 800,000-word newspaper articles, mm. writing a book is something very different. And um, I had written a book on the NHS before, but it was only about 15,000 words. It was just a short polemic. Um, And I'd edited a lot of books, but that's kind of a a, a cop-out in a way because it's other people who are doing the writing and you're just compiling it and putting it together. So when I did this book, I did have a sense of slight trepidation and I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to be found out now. Now... Um, the reaction to the book has been really, really positive, and they but can't I mean, all be lying. About. No, we're talking about why can't we all just get oh, okay. along? Um, they can't all be lying, <laughs> um, and it's got a, I think seventy eight percent five stars on on Amazon. Which again, because I thought, given what I do and given the fact that I have quite a lot of enemies, I thought they would all flood the Amazon page and give it one star and just sort of hurl abuse. But they haven't. I think it's got three percent one stars. Um, so I've been really in my whole life I think that's one thing that I'm, I'm actually really proud of doing bringing that book out on particularly on the subject that it, it, it is and the fact that it has been well received now it's not it hasn't been a bestseller partly because of the pandemic bookshops have been closed it was delayed for three months published in August well never really published books in August um, so it's been disappointing from that point of view. I was looking forward to speaking at various literary festivals. That clearly hasn't happened to any great extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, writing is not something that... If you said to me, right, here are your top ten things that you like about your life and enjoy doing, writing would not be one of them. So you kind of do it because you have to? Is it like an addiction? or? It's not an addiction. It, I, I do it because it's part part of what I do. And it, it's part of, I mean, it sounds terribly pretentious, but it's part of Brandy and Dale. And it is, a, it, I, I think I have built up a bit of a brand. Um, but if I never had to write another newspaper column again, I would be quite happy. <laughs> um, and I don't, I do, I do actually say no. I know everyone thinks that I say yes to everything that people ask me to do, whether it's broadcast media, events or writing but I do actually say no to quite a lot of writing if it's not a subject I don't like writing about things that I know nothing about I can write about things I know nothing about Mm -hmm. I remember my first job in journalism with Lloyd's List International shipping and insurance newspaper I had to write a 1500 word column on reinsurance or to this day I couldn't tell you what reinsurance was (laughs) but but I what I did was I worked out that I was quite good at writing about things that I knew nothing about and people could never tell. And that is actually quite a talent to have. 
Uh, and obviously, when I'm on the radio, I'm covering subjects every day that I can't possibly be an expert on. Mm. Um, I, but I st I'm still expected to have a view on something. Yeah. And there are times when I say, well, I'm not sure what my view is on this. I, I, persuade me during the course of the hour. But generally, the listeners want to know what your view is. And then they ring up and challenge it. That's the way it works. Yeah. But you, you do have to become a bit of an armchair expert on a lot of subjects. And it's I always had a terror of going on programmes like Any Questions, where I thought there's bound to be a question that I won't be able to answer. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't know if you ever do this, but when you watch Question Time, for example, I always think, OK, well, if I was on the panel now, how would I answer that question? And very often I think, oh, I don't know what I would say. But when you're on the programme, you do know what to say because the adrenaline is flowing and, and something occurs to you. And um, that that is what I really enjoy doing. Um, I do enjoy, even though I would still say that I'm quite shy, I like connecting with an audience, whether it's on the radio or whether live. Uh, and I've worked out that if you go on any questions in front of a live audience, what you do is in the warm-up question before you go on air, whatever the question is, make the audience laugh and then you get them on side for the rest of the programme. And you can just... I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but making a connection with an audience is one yeah. of the biggest thrills you can have. Mm. Just making making a thousand people laugh through something that you have said spontaneously is a real thrill. I'm a kind of frustrated stand-up comedian in some ways, in that I would love to have been able to do that. I can make people laugh. Um, and I did, I, I bid at a James Whale charity auction once for a stand-up comedy course, and I think I paid £500 for it, but I was actually too oh. nervous to ever do it. Oh. And, and, and I did do a stand-up turn at a toy party conference charity night for, I think it was a prison, some prison's charity, and I followed Livy Purvis... Yeah, it was, it was in Manchester. Libby Purvis and Jonathan Aitken were on before me. And I did think to myself, why did I say yes to this? And I often do that. What, I think if if I'm going to an event like 200 miles away, why did I say yes to doing this? <laughs> um, so I got up there and I just told a succession of Anne Widdicombe pussy jokes and got them, and got them roaring with laughter. So job done. Uh, I was going to say that sounds quite horrific, <laughs> not funny. Well, uh, do, do you want an Anne well, Widdicombe joke? Mrs Slocum type. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, because Anne Widdicombe did <laughs> have cats. Yeah. But I will tell you an Anne Widdicombe anecdote. Um, she and I used to do a theatre show together called A Night with Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> and, and I remember the, the first time I was on Any Questions, Jonathan Dimbleby was introducing me to the audience and he said, and this is Ian Dale, um, he hosts a theatre show called A Night with Anne Widdicombe. And then he very slowly turned to me and said, Ian, is that a whole night? And I just looked back at him and, and said, Jonathan, a gentleman never tells and the audience of course roared with laughter and all my nerves disappeared immediately um but on on i think this was back in about 2003 yeah. we were driving down the m4 i think going to malvern to do a um show and ian duncan smith had whipped the tory mps to vote against gay adoption and so I started having a discussion with Anne Widdicombe about this. Well, you can imagine what her views were. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I just don't understand, because surely it is better for a child to be brought up in a loving home, whether the parents are male and female, male and male, or female and female, or single parents. Surely that is better than being brought up in a ch children's home. And she said, well, of course, it's a well-known fact that gay relationships last an average of two years, so it wouldn't be a stable environment for a child. 
And I just turned to her and I said, well, in my experience, it's more like 20 minutes. <laughs> And she, she, she roared with laughter to her credit. Um, so she's—I mean, she remains a friend to this day. Bless her. We did used to have a saying actually um, that a gay relationship was two weeks. Anything after that was a lifetime. So yeah, two years. <laughs> wow. And Widdicombe gives us more credit than I thought she did. <laughs> Speaking about Anne Widdicombe, actually. Um, and it's in your book you mentioned religion where what what part does religion play in your life none whatsoever <laughs> um it did as, as a child growing up in a small essex village mm -hmm. um the church was the fulcrum of the village yeah. um my mother would uh do flower arranging she we we would go to uh church was it once a fortnight or once every month i can't remember now to the 9.30 service on a Sunday, and I'd be bored out of my mind. Um, we were given a choice. We could either go into the choir or do bell ringing. So I can reveal to you that I am a campanologist. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, I can do that is. <laughs> plain Bob Major. Um, met, met him in a barracks once. No, joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what I was imagining anyway. <laughs> um is he a campanologist so, as well? <laughs> so, in, in, I mean, I've always thought of... I mean, I think that even though I've probably give the opposite, given the opposite impression on this podcast, I, I think I'm a, quite a moral person. I think that I a lot of my morals would be based on Christian morals. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you have to be religious to be to have Christian attitudes in, in, in a way. Um, you, can, you can be a Muslim or a Jew and have Christian attitudes, if that doesn't sound weird. No, um, no, I get it. But yeah, yeah, it's just I can't, I just cannot. The, even though I'm not a scientist, the logical part of my brain just cannot comprehend how people believe that there are, is basically a fairy up in the sky. I cannot comprehend that. And I understand that it's all about belief and faith, but I need certainty. But then again, I look at a lot of my friends who are deeply religious and think, well, they get a lot out of it. And I remember at university, I tried to get something out of it, but miserably failed. Um, and I'm quite jealous of people who have that degree of faith in a way. But I, I can't, I just can't see it. Fascinates me because I, I love doing failings on religion, but I just cannot see it. So would you separate religion and faith? I don't think you can separate religion and faith because surely faith is all about religion. Um, but this this belief that there is something better out there, uh, I, or there is some greater being, there is life after death. I mean, someone explained to me how that works. I just, when my mother died, um, my sisters went to a, uh, what are they called? Um, people who connect with the spirit world oh yeah like mediums mediums that's yeah. it and i was horrified but secretly rather fascinated yeah. and this guy told them things which he cannot have known mm -hmm. um and i i don't know how they work and i, I don't know if you've ever heard of sally morgan who was yeah. so-called medium sally. to the celebrities psychic sally mm -hmm. well i used to watch her program every week i used to love it and she then came to a theatre near us, so I said to John, shall we go? So off we tootled to Eastbourne, and the the theatre was full, 
I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 people there. 98% were women of a certain age. <laughs> and I just thought, I was so disappointed because I'd sort of, I thought, well, she can't be making this up. But then again, she'd come on stage and say, is there a Margaret in the audience? No, I'm, or, or sort of, I, I'm, I'm sensing a Margaret. Or maybe it's Maureen. Or maybe it's Maraid. And then she, and finally, someone would, put, of course, put their hand up. And so I started tutting. And, of course, all the women turned around and said, shh. <laughs> and I just thought the whole thing was a complete charade. Um, so, anyway, I then decided that I would go and see the same person that uh, my sisters had seen. Mm-hmm. And this was quite some time afterwards. Because um, I, would, I would literally give anything to spend another day with my mum. Um, but it it didn't work. Not at nothing. Um, and then I think, well, if you believe that there is something, there is some sort of connection that these people can't all be frauds, that there must be something that they know. Because, I mean, he he told my sisters about like the colour of my mum's jacket that she would wear gardening. And he described it completely. He described a woman that she was friends with in Cambridge in the 1960s, which my sisters didn't know. They came home and said to my dad, did um, did mum know anyone called Winifred And in Cambridge in the 1960s? And he said, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten all about her. Now, how? I mean, he cannot. That, that's not the sort of thing you can look up in local papers. Mm-hmm. Um, so and there was a few other things which I've now forgotten. But then you think to yourself, well, so what? So he told them all these things, but to what effect? Okay, he knew the colour of a ski jacket. So what? Um, but a lot of people derive a lot of comfort from that sort of mm. thing. They they can't they can't bring themselves to believe that they're never going to see their their loved one again. And um, I mean, my mum died in her, rather horrific circumstances in in some ways. I mean, not I mean, in, in that she was. She was in hospital for a long time and very badly treated by the... I mean, I, I say the NHS but killed both my parents, and I genuinely believe that. Um, and they put her on the Liverpool, car, par, Liverpool care pathway without actually telling us, can you believe? Um, and once we worked out that she was going to die, mm. um, uh, this is, again, one of the things that I'm, I will never, ever regret. I said to the hospital people, I said, right, we're taking her home. Oh, no, you can't do that, sir. I said, just watch me. And they did everything that they could to prevent us taking her home to die. And I thought, I'm not going to let her die in that hospital. And um, and bear in mind, this is one of England's best, supposedly best hospitals, Addenbrooke's in Cambridge. Mm. Um, the, the care she got there was simply appalling. In three weeks, I think she saw over 100 nurses. How can you have proper care if you're not, if the same nurses aren't providing it? Um, and they couldn't even organise an ambulance to take her home. I had to organise one privately. And so she spent the last two weeks of her life in bed looking out on, onto the garden, which she had loved. Um, and it was a horrible time. Um, I mean, she, was, she wasn't quite there. I don't mean in a sort of dementia way at all. It was, she just wasn't, she wasn't her. Um... And I'd never seen anyone die before. Um, and I can remember, actually, this 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 goes back to the medium 
because he said to my sisters, um, oh, you were all there when she died, weren't you? And they said, yes, we were. And then he said, oh, no, one of you wasn't, though. Who who wasn't there the moment that she died? And they said, no, we all were. And they didn't think anything more of that. And yeah. so they were telling me this. And I said, actually, I don't think I was because I I thought she had died. And I can remember rushing out of the room and being sick in the kitchen sink. And they reckoned that she actually died while I was out of the room. And um, it was, yeah. And then it all becomes incredibly mechanical where you have to phone up the funeral directors mm. and sort of two hours later they come and take her away. And they wanted to, they had, I can't think how to describe it, but like a suit cover and they sort of zipped the body up. And I can remember my sister saying, don't zip up her head. And, And then you just see this transit van heading away. And I remember saying to one of my sisters, is that it? And then the funeral was two weeks later. And again, it's one of those occasions where it was the most... She hated going to funerals and she'd obviously rather not have been at her own. Um, And we had this service, which was... uh, My partner said it was more like a West End musical than a funeral in in a way because her three nieces all did things. Um, I I did the eulogy. Which, given, as you can tell in this podcast, I, I cry at anything, um, I was really worried about how I'd get through it. And I'd had to do one a few weeks before that for one of my school friends, so I'd had a sort of practice run. Um, and I worked out that you need to concentrate somebody at the back of the church. Don't look at the front pews, because they're all full of the people that you know and love. Um, con- concentrate on someone you don't recognise at the back. And... Um, Anyway, I got through it, I think right almost until the end. And um, it was just, we played Fields of Gold by Eva Cassidy as the song on the way out. Which whenever I hear that, obviously it brings it all back. Um, and we we didn't have a hearse. We had a, um, a sort of cart. <laughs> Sounds terrible, doesn't it? But our our house was about 400 yards from the church and we had a a cart, so the coffin went on top of the cart and it was pulled by a tractor. There there was just something... I mean, as I say, most people I think would think that was very weird, but it was just absolutely appropriate and she would have really liked it. And we did the same with my dad four four years later. Um, yeah. Wow. And it's okay. something you you never your life is never the same again when you when a parent dies and no. when my dad died in just before Christmas in 2016 my um it's literally on the day that he died I think m- one of my sisters said to me said you you realize we're orphans now and all three of us burst out laughing. 
which was a bit of a weird thing to do. Um, and it's the day you grow up, I think, when you lose both your parents, um, particularly when, when you've had that. I mean, nobody ever has a perfect life, but I, I think, as I said, I had a pretty perfect childhood. I had the support of my parents in everything I did. And given that I came from a farming family, it was always expected that I would follow in my father's footsteps and take over the farm. But I knew I didn't want to do that right from a very young age as a child. But I would have to go through when, whenever I would visit my uncles and aunts. Oh, you're going to be a farmer when you grow up. I'd say, oh, yes, knowing full well that I wasn't. Um, and my parents never put any pressure on me to do it, which I'm so grateful for because it would have been a real, well, a real dilemma, I think. Um but I think they just knew that I wasn't cut out for it. I was, I was, I've always been a very unpractical person. I can't sort of mend anything. I can't do DIY. I can't show me an engine. I haven't got a clue what's what. And you kind of have to do a bit of all of those things if if you if you're in farming. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to do run a business with my dad because he, he for him it wasn't a business. It was a vocation. He just loved everything about it. He would love he loved sitting on a tractor, ploughing up a field for hours on end. Well, I didn't. I have the attention span of a flea. Um, and I would do all the, the, the farming bits and enjoy quite a lot of them. But I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do as a career. Um, so that must have been a disappointment to them. But they never, ever let it be known that it was. And I think they were proud of what I did. My mother... I always remember she she would when I used to do Sky News paper reviews, she was always the first person that I rang up afterwards, and then she would she would always say, "Oh, you were brilliant," even when I wasn't. And I I remember the first one after she died, I went to phone her afterwards, mm. and then of course realised I couldn't. Um, and and as I say, it 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 just it's when your parents die, you get transferred onto a into a different life a life where things aren't quite the same again and um you don't quite what you you don't know what you've missed sometimes until it's taken away from you and i can't believe i have no sound recording of my mother mm. and you think well why on earth didn't we sort of record stuff with her but you don't think of it until it's too late mm. so there we are. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I could listen. It, the picture you paint there um, is is just so full, and that's uh, wow. I, 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 I'm really thankful that you just shared all of that because you've, you've you you took me there with you, and um, so I think I've rendered you speechless. <laughs> No, you, you've 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 rendered me emotional, um, and but I'm really thankful for that. And um, well, well, I I have never been shy about showing emotions because um, I think the worst thing you can do is is button them up. Mm -hmm. And I I, I know um, some one or two of my colleagues on LBC um, think that I show my emotions a little bit too much on air. But generally, you're only doing what people listening are doing I, i'll always remember the day that um lee rigby was murdered in woolwich yeah. i was on air just after it happened and um 
the ne was it the next day or the day after that i think the the ministry of defense released a statement and and my producer put it on my screen and it was coming up to the news so i thought well i need to read this out before the news so i didn't read it first before i read it out on air which normally i would skim read it and then read it out yeah so i started reading out this statement and it got to the bit where it said um and lee rigby was the father of and i just lost it and I, I just sort of went silent for about two seconds. But two seconds on the radio sounds like half a minute. Mm -hmm. And then just as before the news, you know, we do this sort of talk up to the next hour. Yeah. And instead of doing that, I just said, I, I just want to apologise. That was totally unprofessional of me. Um, I shouldn't have lost it like that. And then it went to the news. And then my screen just filled up with texts and tweets from people saying, don't apologise because we were doing it too. And that is the power of radio. You, you can't have moments of like that, on, like that on television. Radio is just so such an intimate medium. And um, there was another occasion I can remember when I teared up over something. And my producer said to me, did you do that on purpose? I said, no, I did not. What kind of person do you think I am? Um, so I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. I, I think too many men feel that it's a weakness to show emotion. It's a weakness to cry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it, it really isn't, actually. It's, it's a sign of emotional strength, I feel. In I that, see massive strength. Massive yeah, strength. I, I do. And I've never been embarrassed about it um my mother was exactly the same i mean we will literally cry at emmerdale um <laughs> i mean i will uh, the john lewis advert each year that's the sort of thing that just sets me off I, and i can watch the new one yet well I, I have and actually it's a pretty bad one but most of them <laughs> i can watch them 20 times and each time they make me cry <laughs> yeah. um now i i don't see anything wrong with that at all no, 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 me neither. I, I think more people... In fact, I think it's a good thing. More people are in touch with their... More men are in touch with their emotions these days than they used to be. Um, my mum sounds very similar to you and your mum and probably me. Um, although I have learned um, resilience in, in some ways, um, purely so I can be a soundboard for other people. Sometimes it just takes you and you have to go with it. And I'm talking about sadness there and... Um, yeah. And I suppose what people might call the negative emotions, <laughs> sadness and, and, and uh, anger or, or things like that. Um, I don't see any any emotion as negative. I think they're all so needed. And the more we, we bury them, the, the, the stronger they'll become, but with inside us. Well, you, you are right, I think, generally. But I, I mean, in, some emotions can be destructive in that I know that um, I, I can be quite temperamental i have quite a volcanic temper mm -hmm. and um it, having said that in 25 years together my partner and i have never had uh, what i would call a door slamming row a real real humdinger of a row obviously you have disagreements you have little spats yeah. um but we've never had one of those terrible terrible rows mm -hmm. which given my temperament is quite astonishing well, <laughs> um do you have an outlet for that then do i have a what an outlet for that anger where, where does it go to well 
I don't get angry that often, but if I do lose my temper with somebody, it's over within 20 seconds. And I just I just get back on an even keel and carry on as normal. But what I've discovered in life is that most people aren't like that. Most people can't get back on an even keel that quickly. They have to sleep on it and they have to uh, sort of just get it out of their system. And and so I have to bear that in mind if, if I ever do lose my temper with someone that they're, they're not going to get over it as quickly as I will. Um, I don't know whether I'm the sort of exception on that or not, but... Um, I, I don't, I, I I don't think I'm ever deliberately hurtful to people in terms of losing my temper. But and I tend to lose my temper over really stupid things, like small things. Whereas if there's a big thing, um, I just take deal with it. Um, if there's a big crisis, I I will deal with it. Whereas if it's, I I think it's incompetence. That's what really makes me angry when somebody has just been totally incompetent and lazy and it's had a detrimental effect on something that i'm involved in that's what really makes me lose my shit so we know so we know what makes you angry we know what makes you sad um what makes you smile um what are you thankful for my dogs um people who aren't doggy people don't get the relationship that you have with a dog and um, we always had dogs as kids, always a Jack Russell, usually a Labrador involved somewhere as well, often. Um, and when <laughs> I met John, <laughs> when I met John, I think it was two years after we met, we got a Jack Russell puppy from Battersea. We actually went to get a fully grown dog, but um, in the end came out with a puppy. Um, and when I look back, that was utter madness, because what if we'd split up? Um, I mean, two years is not really long enough to work out that you are going to spend the rest of your life together. Um, but he was such a joy to us. And he died in 2011. And I mean, it was just the most awful, awful thing. Um, and we have two dogs now, um, a Jack Russell and a miniature schnauzer, who are the centre of our lives. And I know people who don't have dogs will think, oh, how pathetic, get over yourself. <laughs> But um, I would literally, I would do, I would do anything for those dogs. I would spend any amount of money to make their lives happy. Mm. And if they were in trouble or if they were ill, um, I don't care what it would cost. It would get spent because they give you such unconditional love. Um, They, they are the center of our lives. Simple as that. So, yeah. Well, people say that. I mean, I've never wanted children, which I know some people think um, is a bit weird, but some people do, some people don't. Um, I've never wanted children. I didn't. I've never had that thing where, oh, I must live on through my kids. Um, so I, I don't. I mean, in a way, I suppose that it's the natural conclusion to draw. Okay, you don't have children, so you have two dogs that you treat like kids, which I mean, mm. in, in a sense, you do. Um, we don't like leaving them on their own because we know what happens. They have separation anxiety and they start doing the hand of the Baskerville act. Uh, <laughs> and so you know that they are, they are experiencing emotional pain and you don't want them to feel yeah. that. So that's actually why we got two. Cause we thought, well, if they, if they're together, if we ever do have to leave them alone and we generally don't for more than a couple of hours, 
um, at least they've got each other for company and they they we got them within a week of each other so they've grown up together and they get on with each other they, they've only they've had two fights two vicious fights which really upset me <laughs> um because they that generally they adore each other but i mean it's like any human relationships you you cannot go through your entire life without some sort of falling out i suppose except for you and john <laughs> well yes but that's because i'm so tolerant of all of his foibles no i'm exactly i think i'm joking <laughs> Let's hope he's not listening. He's not going to listen. <laughs> I know he ne he never listens to anything. I mean, he does listen to the show sometimes, but he never listens to podcasts. Um, never reads my books, so uh, I think I think we're on safe ground with that one. <laughs> that's okay, that's good. That's good. I don't want him uh, contacted me and having a go at me. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you get that information out of him? No, I'm the same with my dogs. My well, dogs well, are, are my joy. Well, he always says, can you keep nothing private? When I did, I did a phone in on male rape when I t talked about a situation that I was uh, involved in 30 years ago when I, I was nearly raped. Um, he was not best pleased. Can you keep nothing private? Honestly, what? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> so, so, you, so you do it on podcasts where he, where he doesn't know. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today and opening up. Honestly, it's been a pleasure. It actually has. And um, I could listen to you forever. I really could. Uh, and I wouldn't have said well, that you, a few you months ago. You can do three, three, hours, three hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then. What times? <laughs> Seven till ten, Monday to Thursday on LBC. And I also do, if you want to um, listen to any of my podcasts, I do the weekly, well, bi-weekly at the moment, all the many podcasts with Jackie Smith, uh, where we have a bit of a laugh about politics and our lives and various other podcasts as well. And your books. <laughs> my books, Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And the new one, which um, has just come out, The Prime Ministers, which charts the lives of all of our 55 prime ministers since 1721, which is not a book that I've written. I've edited that because so, I can't possibly be an expert on all of them. Um, great Christmas present. So with that being said, apart from commercially, I hope you found some benefit in today. I've really enjoyed it because um, being a radio presenter, I love talking about myself <laughs> because let's face it, all radio presenters have an ego. Um, you wouldn't be on the radio if you didn't. And I, I do, I, I say that half in jest, but I do think that I have had quite a lot of experiences in my life, which I can bring into conversations, which that's what makes speech radio so great in that you one one of my first boss at LBC said, look, you, you give of yourself. Don't put up barriers. Let the audience know what your life is like. And the number of people I meet, I mean, sometimes people recognise me on, on the street and see me on GMB or Jerry Vine or something. And uh, they know that I drive an Audi. They know that I support West Ham. They know that I've got two dogs. And I mean, sometimes they tell me things that I'd forgotten I'd even said on the radio. But it really is important to do that. There was, there was one presenter that I knew once who created this completely false persona on the radio. And I, I just couldn't do that. Alan I, Partridge, I, was it? I, it wasn't Alan Partridge. No, he, he is, of course, my role model. Um, you, 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 ha you have to um, be yourself, as David Cameron would say, keep it real, because people have a very good knack of knowing when you're not telling the truth. And um, I'd like to think that over the 10 years that I've been on LBC, um, I, I don't think I've ever 
uh, deliberately misled people about what I think or what I believe or who I am. And um, long may that continue. Long may that continue indeed. Right then, I'd just like to end by saying to anyone listening, if you need to, please reach out and talk to somebody. Uh, 116123, that's the Samaritans, and it's nothing to be ashamed of if you want to call and speak to them. On the other hand, if you can, be there for somebody. Listen to them. Really listen. Um, I'm Ollie Sefton, and thank you for listening to me and this podcast. Thank you to Ian Dale for joining me, and I hope you'll join me for another cuppa and a chat sometime in the future. Mm